Thank you for listening to this sermon from Renaissance Church located in Montreal, Quebec. For more information about Renaissance Church, please visit our website, renaissancemtl.com. If you would like to know more about how you can partner up to see the gospel advance in Montreal, please send us an email at renaissance.mtl at gmail.com. All right, good morning. Uh, Uh, For those of you who don't know me again, my name is David. Um, I want to thank James and Graham and Dylan for this opportunity. Uh, We're going to be continuing today in the uh, series on Abraham's life. So we'll be in Genesis chapter 13. Uh, Genesis chapter 13, again, following along the story that we've already started a little bit in the life of Abraham. Uh, So I'm just, or as a reminder... The text at this point still is calling him Abram, uh, but it's the same person. His name hasn't quite changed yet. Uh, and so I'm just going to start by reading the first seven verses uh, of this text and introduce a little bit. It says, So Abram went up from Egypt, he and his wife and all that he had, and lot with him into the Negeb. Now Abram was very rich in livestock and silver and in gold, and he journeyed on from the Negeb as far as Bethel to the place where his tent had been at the beginning, between Bethel and I to the place where he had made an altar at the first. And there Abram called upon the name of the Lord. And Lot, who went with Abram, also had flocks and herds and tents, so that the the land could not support both of them dwelling together. For their possessions were so great that they could not dwell together. And there was strife between the herdsmen of Abram's livestock and the herdsmen of Lot's livestock. At that time, the Canaanites and the Perizzites were dwelling in the land." So as it starts out here, uh, we're just continuing the story of Abraham. If you remember a few weeks ago, uh, Dylan introduced in chapter 12, and even before that, a bit about his family and his life. Uh, Lot, who's introduced in this story, is his nephew. Uh, He's not introduced here. He's been uh, sort of tagging along with Abraham through this, this story so far. And if we remember at the beginning of chapter 12, he is called to journey west towards the promised land. So he leaves where, he's, uh, where he knows everything, where he's been, and he journeys towards the west. Then last week, uh, we learned about the famine that was happening there. So there was a famine, and so he continued a little bit further into Egypt uh, when there was the famine, and as we learned last week, there was uh, a bit of a debacle there in Egypt, and now this text uh, brings us back to him coming back into the land, back to where he had been before, and it's helpful to notice here in verse Number four, it says the place where he had made an altar at first. So he had made an altar back in chapter 12, verse 8. He had worshiped the Lord there. Then things didn't go so well in Egypt, and now he's back, uh, back worshiping the Lord at this altar, back to the land where the Lord had sent him, back to where he's supposed to be, back worshiping and calling out to the Lord. So in a sense, the Egypt story is bracketed by these two events of him worshiping the Lord uh, and, and serving the Lord at this altar. And I just want to bring up briefly, at the end of our text today, he will do this again. He'll make another altar at the end of chapter 13 to worship the Lord. So the story tells us that there are, that each have many possessions. Verse 2, Abraham has a lot of possessions. Verse 5, Lot has a lot of possessions. They have a lot of things. And they've accumulated so much that there's now strife between each of their herdsmen, it says. They're fighting each other, and it tells us that the Canaanites and the Perizzites are also in this land. So the idea is the land isn't big enough for Abraham, Lot, the Canaanites, and the Perizzites. Uh, There's just too much going on in this land. 
You know, when I was growing up, my father was an officer in the U.S. Navy. So I grew up, he was in the United States, uh, lived most of my childhood in and around uh, Norfolk, Virginia. Um, and so you would think, as military family, we moved around a lot. It wasn't really actually the case. We moved a lot when I was young, and then many, many times later, my dad was told that we were going to have to move. We're supposed to move to England. We're supposed to move to all different places, and it always fell through at the last minute. But one time, we knew we were supposed to move, and my dad was coming home to my mom and me and my brother to tell us where we were going to go. And I was really excited, hoping for like a fun, tropical place, all these exciting ideas. And he comes home and says, there are two options. They gave me two choices. We can either move to Nebraska, which if you're familiar with the US geography, Nebraska is not near anything you would expect like a Navy person to go. There's no like ocean anywhere. It's the middle of the, the United States or Hawaii. So he was told Nebraska or Hawaii. So as you might suspect, my eyes lit up. I was really thrilled because I thought, we're going to Hawaii. This is going to be great. I've always dreamed about going to Hawaii. Now I get to live in Hawaii. There's beaches. There's sun. It's going to be great. But then my dad, you know, brought up all his adult concerns about the schools and cost of living and being a plane ride away and all these reasons why that Hawaii might be a nice place to vacation but not a good place to live. I was kind of bummed that he had decided we were moving to Nebraska. Why even tell me that we were thinking about going to Hawaii, except to just say, well, maybe we'll vacation there someday. I thought of this a lot this week as we were looking through this story, because uh, similarly in Genesis 13, as we'll see here in a moment, there is a decision to be made about particular land. And we'll see, just as my eyes lit up at the thought of Hawaii, we'll see in our story that what is pleasing to the eye is not always the way of faith, even when a land or place looks really, really nice. So as we, said, as we said in the first seven verses, there is strife between Lot and Abraham. Their herdsmen are fighting, and so let's see how Abraham uh, deals with this. Verses 8 and 9 say, then, Abraham, or then Abram said to Lot, Let there be no strife between you and me, and between your herdsmen and my herdsmen, for we are kinsmen. Is not the whole land before you? Separate yourself from me. If you take the left hand, then I will go to the right. Or if you take the right hand, then I will go to the left. So how does Abraham handle this? Well, he starts by saying, first and foremost, let there be no strife between you and me. He prioritized harmony and peace in his relationship with Lot. And given the way Abraham phrases the proposition, it seems evident that he is more concerned with peace in this relationship than with uh, finding a nice place uh, for himself to settle. He sets the land before Lot, saying, is not the whole land before you? Look, if you go to the right, I'll go to the left. If you go that way, I'll go this way. You take your pick, and I'll take whatever's left over. It might, may seem like a small or tiny thing, but it's actually a great demonstration of faith on the part of Abraham. He lets Lot choose the place to go, and he trusts that the Lord will take care of the results. Abraham could have handled this in many ways. Lot was his nephew, so he presumably has some authority over Lot. He could tell him, look, we're go you need to leave. Your herdsmen need to, you know, be nicer. Uh, there are many ways he could have done this. Um, but instead, he knew that God had made a covenant with him. God had promised, uh, made promises to him, and he did not need to defer to Lot. But he chose to walk by faith and defer to Lot and prioritize peace. Abraham trusted in God's promise. He knew that God had promised the land to him and his descendants, and he knew that the Lord would provide for him no matter where he was, even as he had been provided for in Egypt when he, was, uh, when he had sinned. 
Therefore, he did not insist on his own way, but in a sense, he even opens himself up to being possibly taken advantage of. He demonstrated faith by allowing Lot to choose which way to go, and he trusted that God would provide for him, and he prioritized peace and harmony with Lot. When conflict arose, he trusted God to provide for his needs. Instead of, instead of ensuring that his flocks and herds and everything had the best place to get their water or he had the best place to plant uh, everything, he trusted the one who brings the water and raises the plants, and he instead made sure that there was no strife between him and Lot, stay on good terms with his nephew. So that might be how Abraham handled the situation. He looked to the Lord and he told Lot, choose wherever you want to go, I'll go the other way. But let's see in verses uh, 10 through 13 how Lot handles this. If Abraham walked by faith, we might say Lot walked by sight. Let's read verses 10 through 13. And Lot lifted up his eyes and saw that the Jordan Valley was well watered everywhere, like the garden of the Lord, like the land of Egypt in the direction of Zoar. This was before the Lord destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah. So Lot chose for himself all the Jordan Valley, and Lot journeyed east. Thus they separated from each other. Abram settled in the land of Canaan, while Lot settled among the cities of the valley and moved his tent as far as Sodom. Now the men of Sodom were wicked, great sinners against the Lord. So how does Lot make his decision? Does he cry out to God? Does he call out to the Lord? Um, does he defer to Abraham? No, it says he lifts up his eyes and chooses the land which looked most pleasing. This is the Jordan Valley, it says. The land was well watered everywhere, like the garden of the Lord. So to him, it looked almost like Eden. So this was uh, the land that uh, looked really, really nice. It was like the land of Egypt, he says. And Egypt in this time was a land that had, was very blessed. It was on the, along the Nile River. There were lots of uh, good things that came from there. So Lot chose the place that looked best to him. Of course, if we remember the original map of his journey, he's called to go towards the west, and it tells us Lot goes east. And if we, yes, awesome. If we see the map here, it's sort of hard to, hard to show exactly. Um, but if you see where it says Bethel, you might be able to see. Maybe not. Uh, but just trust, he goes, it says, as far as Sodom. So he goes east about as far as you can to, uh, away from sort of the, the promised land. Later in the book of Joshua, when the Israelites conquered this land, this would be the land of the Moabites. So he goes uh, as far east as basically the Dead Sea, which is that little tiny body of water you can't quite see there, almost to the other side to go uh, even further than necessary. He goes as far as Sodom to the edge of this land and then out of it. And we'll talk more in a few minutes about Lot and, and Sodom and some of that, um, not in great detail, but... I think it's important to recognize why Lot chose this land. It was based off what he saw and not based on promises of God. God had promised to bless Abraham and his descendants, and it was in the land of Canaan, and Lot didn't necessarily need to go that far. But what he saw was appealing. Lot walked by sight, choosing the land that seemed most suited to his earthly pursuits. And I think it's important here to note that the text doesn't give us great reason to believe Lot like, wanted to participate in all the sins of Sodom. In fact, uh, later, as we'll talk about in just a minute, later in Second Peter, actually, Peter mentions that he didn't participate in the sins there. But Lot did choose it because it was, as he said, well-watered. And I think the text highlights uh, the wickedness of that city to foreshadow some of the consequences, as we'll see, the consequences that come from this decision onto Lot. So Lot, Lot walked by sight, and his decision is contrasted with that of Abraham. 
Lot chose what looked best to him. He took his provision into his own hands. You see Abraham, in this case, sort of backing away and saying, you take whatever you want. I trust the Lord. Wherever I have to go, that's where I go. And Lot's saying, you know what? I'm going to pick out the place that is best for me to go. But I think it's important to note and important to remember, Lot's choice makes total sense to us, right? It's a logical decision, especially if there's no faith involved, no promises involved, and this is the logical thing to do. See, before moving on and looking at verses 14 through 18, it's important to reflect on why they made their decisions. When we live a life of faith, our decisions will often make little sense to those who operate strictly from a worldly perspective. If we take God out of the equation, does not Lot's choice make, is not Lot's choice the most logical, not the way we would normally act? Of course, again, we want to go, uh, be careful about going too far and assuming really nefarious motives on Lot's part. There is a noticeable difference in the way he and Lot Uh, Abraham and Lot handle the situation. The reason, or sort of the why, behind their decisions tells us a lot. Abraham wanted to maintain peace with Lot. He wanted to trust God uh, in providing for him, even if that meant sort of temporary detriment, right? Temporarily, he's not in land that's as well-watered or as nice. Lot's reason was to ensure his own provision. He took matters into his own hands. As we'll see in a few weeks, I presume, uh, about Abraham, we'll see an instance where he tries to take matters into his own hands, and that usually doesn't end well. So as we look at this text, let's reflect. Do our choices reflect faith? Is there anything, anything at all about our lives that uh, might not make sense to a watching world? Anything that gives away that we're living for an unseen hope, that we're living for something beyond this world? If you've trusted the Lord, do your decisions, thoughts, desires differ from those who haven't trusted the Lord? Is there evidence that they do? And I have to preach this to myself as much as to any of you. I mean, I, I know from myself, I'm often having the same desires or same thoughts that many in the world, you know, how can I get the most money or possessions or wealth or whatever it might be? Uh, but that's not the way of faith. In moving on to verses 14 through 18, let's recall for a minute where Abraham is in his journey. Remember at the very beginning, even before chapter 12, when we learned a little bit about about his family, the text tells us that uh, his wife is barren, so they don't have any children. Then in chapter 12, God calls him from the land and tells him to go to the west. And if we recall some of those promises, here here they are. It says, he's going to make Abraham a great nation. He's going to bless him. Those who uh, he blesses, God will bless. Those whom he curses, God will curse. And it says, in you, meaning in Abraham, all the families of the earth will be blessed. So we might not blame Abraham right now for thinking like, come on, God, I'm doing the right thing. You told me I'm going to get you know, this blessing and this land. You told me I'm going to become a great nation. There's going to be all these uh, descendants. And at this point, uh, there's no descendants. And his wife, as far as we know, is barren. And Lot just seemed to take the better land. And it's important to note, of course, we have hindsight. We know God is going to work out his promises. We know Abraham, you know, if you've turned the page a few pages down, you know God's going to provide a way for Abraham, and it's going to be really nice. But Abraham doesn't, well, not always nice, actually, sometimes gets himself into trouble. But we know, right, that it works out. But Abraham, at this stage, didn't know that yet. He had promises from God, some of which were unfulfilled. And so he had faith. Let's read verses 14 through 18. The Lord said to Abram, after Lot had separated from him, lift up your eyes and look from the place where you are 
northward, southward, and eastward and westward. For all the land that you see, I will give to you and to your offspring forever. I will make your offspring as the dust of the earth, so that if one can count the dust of the earth, your offspring also can be counted. Arise, walk through the length and the breadth of the land, for I will give it to you. So Abram moved his tent and came and settled by the oaks of Mamre, which are at Hebron, and there he built an altar to the Lord. So we see here that God is faithful to his promises. That doesn't necessarily mean he's going to work on our timeline. God reminds Abraham of his promise. He reminds him and tells him that this land is his. God has brought him to this land from the land of his forefathers. Look, he says, look north, south, east, and west. It's yours. And he tells him to walk through the length of the land. And that's sort of a a ceremonial or symbolic way of saying he took possession of the land. This was Abraham's uh, place that God had put him. God shows Abraham that even though Lot may have had the, the choice land or the, the nice, well-watered place, Abraham is right where he should be, and God is with him. God is telling him, this is the land I have for you, take it. Remember, he's already promised him uh, that he would bless Abraham. And Abraham responds by building an altar uh, to the Lord. And again, this story is sandwiched between him worshiping at the altar in verse 4 and him building one to the Lord now. And so we see that God is faithful to his promises, but again, God hasn't fulfilled them all yet. Uh, He hasn't fulfilled the the promise about offspring. So he doesn't necessarily work on the timeline that Abraham might think is the best or the way he was hoping things would work. And God doesn't promise us that he will work uh, for us in these necessarily material ways, but he does promise he'll never leave us nor forsake us and that he will be true to his word. So again, at this point, Abraham may be wondering how on earth he's supposed to father a great nation. So God gave him the land, and that's great, and, uh, and gave him, and it seems to be blessing him with, with these different things, and he can rest knowing that God will provide his other promises. He can rest now seeing, again, God has been faithful to his promise, and even though not everything is yet fulfilled, he can worship in faith knowing that God will be true to his word. And I wonder sometimes how often, I know in my own life, I fall back into fear and a lack of trust in God's promises. How long does our trust last? And this is another thing I had to really preach to myself this week. Uh, As as some of you know, uh, maybe not all the details, but for years and years and years, (laughs) Elise can testify, for years and years and years, even probably, maybe even before we were married, I was praying and praying and praying about where, if, and if so, where I should do a PhD. Where am I going to go? What am I going to do? I knew I wanted to study, but there were so many ideas in my head, I didn't know, and I just kept praying and praying and praying and thinking and thinking and thinking, and we discussed and discussed and discussed, pretty much to the point where, like, I'm, she could have gone crazy. I almost went crazy. So I prayed for years and years and years and years, and when the time finally came, really in the last year and a half to two years, nothing about it happened the way I anticipated Nothing at all happened the way I had, I mean, I had thought about this way too much, and absolutely nothing happened the way I anticipated. And yet, through the entire process, it was clear, it was evident through even some uh, just amazing circumstances that God was working, God was in control, God had a plan from the beginning. I mean, it was really amazing to see. And yet, as I think many of you know, I started the program like eight months ago, I already find myself worrying about what God's going to have next. Lord, is there going to be a job at the end of this? Is this all just a waste of time? What happens if my study permit runs out and we have nowhere to go? What are you going to do? 
And I mean, in my own life, I look and I have this, what seems like just such an amazing example of God's faithfulness, and yet, within a matter of months, I can find myself already worrying, is God going to be faithful? Is God, is God going to watch out for me? And so I know for myself, I need this reminder as much as anyone else. God is faithful to his promises. God shows here to Abraham that he's faithful to his promises, even though not everything is, un, uh, not everything is fulfilled. So I think it's helpful to look at how Abraham responded here, but I also think it's uh, instructive for us to take a few minutes and follow up with Lot. Through the remainders of the sermons in the series, uh, it is a Life of Abraham series after all, so they'll mostly be focused on Abraham. So I'm just going to take a few minutes then and maybe fill in some gaps about the life of Lot. And again, I want to be careful about imputing really nefarious motives on Lot's part. There are plenty of resources I found out there that just talk about him as if, you know, he's, he's the worst of the worst. Yet, again, Second Peter calls him righteous Lot, which we'll talk about in just a moment. So let's take a minute to look through, uh, briefly, through the life of Lot and see uh, what we can learn from him. And in a roundabout way, what we'll then also see about Abraham. So in Genesis 14, I'm just going to summarize, things are not going well for Lot in this nice, well-watered land. Uh, Lot is captured in war. Word of his capture gets to Abraham. So Abraham gathers a group of, of soldiers. They go and they rescue Lot. So it doesn't take very long for things to not go well for Lot. He's captured, and Abraham saves him. We meet him again in Genesis chapter 19, the story of Sodom and Gomorrah. But it's helpful to know at the very end of Genesis chapter 18, what we actually see is uh, the angels or messengers from the Lord uh, are visiting Abraham. So there's messengers visiting Abraham. We'll learn more about that story in a few weeks. And they get, uh, God hears an outcry against Sodom and Gomorrah and decides to do something about it. And the end of chapter 18, chapter 18, verses 22 through the end of the chapter, is this uh, story of Abraham interceding on behalf of the city, saying to God, you know, almost negotiating, like, Lord, will you not destroy the city if you find 50 righteous people? What about if you see 45? And this and that. And Abraham isn't uh, sort of arrogantly negotiating with God. He says in verse 27, you know, I am but dust and ashes, and yet I would speak to the Lord. So he's humble in this. But we see Abraham uh, interceding on behalf of the city to the point where God says, for the sake of 10 people, I will not destroy it. So awesome. There are six, you'll find out in a minute, there are six people in Lot's household. So if they're righteous and we can just find four others, the city's good. Um, If you know the story, the city was not good. Uh, It did not, there were not 10 righteous people, uh, not even Lot's family. So the messengers or angels of the Lord go to the house of Lot in verse 19. He's sitting at the gate of the city, which would sort of indicate some level of prominence within the city. Um, and Lot heeds their warning. He, he listens to the word of the Lord through these messengers. And again, he doesn't always act, in, uh, act well. I won't go into details. He doesn't always do, uh, act perfectly. But he does listen to these messengers and try to get his family out of the city. Of course, not even his whole family listens to him. Chapter 19, verse 14 says, So Lot went and said to his sons-in-law, who were to marry his daughters, Up, get out of this place, for the Lord is about to destroy the city. So he trusts the Lord to destroy it. And it says, But he seemed to his sons-in-laws to be joking. Then later, as he and his wife and daughters are fleeing the city, they are told, Do not look back. And as you might know, it says, But Lot's wife behind him looked back, and she became a pillar of salt. 
after this, Lot and his daughters escape to the mountains, and I'm, again, not going to go into detail, but things do not go well for uh, there with uh, Lot either, uh, and that's where we learn a little bit about why the Moabites have uh, that land. So again, you wouldn't be alone in thinking after all this that, man, Lot must be a pretty terrible guy. Uh, many materials out there, again, portray him in this way, uh, but again, Peter brings him up in 2 Peter chapter 2. In verses 6 through 8, Peter says, If by turning the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah to ashes, God condemned them to extinction, making them an example of what is going to happen to the ungodly. Uh, for if he rescued righteous Lot, greatly distressed by the sensual conduct of the wicked, for as that righteous man lived among them day after day, he was tormenting his righteous soul over the lawless deeds that he saw and heard. So it calls him righteous Lot. So how are we to take these stories of Lot? You know, we saw in Genesis 13, he seems to be sort of trying to provide a way for himself and goes to this land. Um, and yet here, it's, uh, and, and all these terrible things happen in, in Sodom. And so why are we supposed to think of him as righteous? Well, I think one of the first things to notice in 2 Peter is, and I didn't read the whole section, but within 2 Peter, uh, Peter is specifically drawing a connection between the story of the flood and Noah and Sodom and Gomorrah. And in both cases, Peter's saying, look, in both of these cases, God judged people, he wiped them out, and in both cases, God basically reached in and took someone out who, was, who, who listened to God's warning. So in the same way that God warned in the days of Noah, I'm going to destroy everything, so listen to me, and Noah said yes. In the same way, when the messengers came to Lot, Lot, again, for all his other maybe faults, he did listen to God's messengers, he did get out of the city. And so that is the, the main connection that Peter seems to be drawing, that he listened to the word of the Lord. And I think even this, this word righteous, right, uh, is helpful uh, in thinking about Lot, because in verse 16, I'm now back in, sorry, Genesis 19, verse 16, it's talking about Lot leaving, and it says he lingered. It says, so the men, or the messengers, seized him and his wife and his daughters by the hand, the Lord being merciful to him, and they brought him out. So it says that they were, the Lord found Lot and was merciful to him. And I think that alone is enough uh, for all of us to, to reflect on, right? Any righteousness we might have is based on the mercy of the Lord, right? It's on the work of the Lord uh, uh, as deliverer. And lastly, Peter says that uh, Lot, while he was in the city, he did not participate in what they did. So again, the story and the, 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 the narrative of Lot it can be a bit confusing, it can be a bit uh, disjointed, but what we see here is someone who did make uh, an unwise decision in chapter th uh, 13, and we do see consequences to it. But one, thing I want, one point I want to make, and I think it's incredibly important for our purposes in a, a, a series on the life of Abraham, is thinking through the connection of Abraham in these passages. See, when good things happen to Lot throughout these stories, it's because of Abraham. Lot's blessings are connected to Abraham. And remember, in the covenant to Abraham, God said, in you will all the families of the earth be blessed. I'm just going to read quickly Genesis 19, 27 through 29. These are the verses right after the Lord has destroyed the city. It says, And Abraham went early in the morning to the place where he had stood before the Lord. And he looked down toward Sodom and Gomorrah and toward the land of the valley. And he looked, and behold, the smoke of the land went up like smoke of a furnace. So it was that God, when God destroyed the cities of the valley, God remembered Abraham and sent Lot out of the midst of the overthrow when he overthrew the cities in which Lot had lived. 
It doesn't say God saw how awesome Lot was or God uh, just sort of on a whim decided what to do. It says God remembered Abraham. So in Genesis 14, when Lot's been captured in war, who goes to save him? Abraham. In Genesis 18, when Lot doesn't even know what's going on, who's interceding on his behalf? It's Abraham. And here it says God pulls him out of the city because of Abraham. So we can see the Lord being faithful to his promise that in Abraham, uh, there would be blessing. When I was eight years old, my parents told me that I was going to have a sibling. I was an only child to this point, And they said, you are going to have a sibling. And it turned out to be my little brother. And they told me his due date was going to be July 9th. And my birthday is May 16th. So I was eight years old, didn't really understand anything about pregnancy or babies. So I said, okay, uh, can he be born on my birthday? And my parents said, well, probably not. And if so, that would be not good. That would be a, like, <laughs> that would cause problems. We don't really want that. But I was like, well, you're telling me there's a chance, so awesome. So then for months, <laughs> anytime before we'd eat a meal or if I was at church and anybody asked me to pray for anything, it could be totally unrelated, I would always say like before dinner, every night, like, dear God, thank you for this food and please help the baby to be born on my birthday. And I would pray anywhere I could that the baby was going to be born on my birthday. And my parents would always say like, stop, this is not a good thing. <laughs> we are actually discouraging this. And I just, I just respond like, well, I'm asking God, not you. And he can, he can work it out. So <laughs> yeah. <laughs> And so uh, everyone at our church, all of our friends, everyone knew that this was like my, my, my wish, and I was, I was praying about it earnestly, and I really, really, really wanted to be born on my birthday. And on May 13th, I think it was the 13th, uh, my mom goes in for a checkup, and they found something. They like, just stay the night, just stay a day. Then on the 14th, like, ah, oh, just stay one more day. And I remember she called me on the afternoon of the 15th and said, like, they're going to let me out tonight. I'll be there in the morning for your birthday. And Sure enough, I woke up on my birthday, and she was not home, and I got a call that my brother had been born at like one in the morning, and so we have the same birthday nine years apart. This is a, uh, the reason I say this is because the next Sunday at church, so everyone, again, everyone knew this is what I wanted. I'd been praying about it. I'd been talking about it constantly, and so the pastor says, like, from the pulpit, if anybody has any prayer requests that they really want answered, ask David Quackenboss. You should ask him because the Lord is listening. And uh, so I had like old people in the church come to me like, hey man, can you ask God for a raise? <laughs> or like all these like funny things. And it, was, it was funny and it was all it, it, as a joke. But what sort of underlies it being funny, what, what it sort of betrays about us, right, is we want to be connected to what God is doing. We want to be connected to where God is blessing. The, the joke is like if God is working in this way, like go towards that, right? And so... Uh, we want to be connected to the work of the Lord. How was Lot connected to the work of the Lord? Well, we see often it was through Abraham, through God's covenant with Abraham. Lot was blessed through his relationship to Abraham. And so you might be right, or you would be right in asking right now, like, how can I be connected to this? How can I be a part of this, uh, the blessings of God? And the answer is, of course, through Jesus Christ. In Galatians chapter 2, Paul says uh, that we have believed in Jesus Christ in order to be justified by faith in Him. We are saved, you're set right with God by faith in Jesus Christ. He goes on in Galatians 3 verses 7 through 9 to say, Know then that, is, that it is those of faith who are sons of Abraham. 
And the Scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, In you shall the nations be blessed. So then, those who are of faith are blessed along with, the, with Abraham, the man of faith. In our text today, we saw Abraham show great faith in the Lord to provide for him. And in Christ, we are not promised abundant land. We're not promised innumerable offspring. We're not promised great flocks and herds and, and whatever it may be. But we are promised many things. That the Lord will never leave us nor forsake us. That He will provide for our needs, whether the physical needs or spiritual needs, not necessarily wants, but provide for our physical needs and spiritual needs. And that we'll get to live with the Lord in eternity. Abraham trusted God, and we demonstrate faith like Abraham by trusting in Jesus for the forgiveness of sins. Like Abraham, who was unable to foresee what would happen when it seemed like Lot had chosen the better land, we trust God even when we can't see what he's doing. That's the nature of faith. Faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the convictions of things not seen. We can't see it. But we show faith by trusting in Jesus. If you're here today and you haven't put your faith in Jesus, I invite you to do so. He has made a way for you to be right with God. If you repent of your sins and trust in Him for forgiveness, uh, He will uh, be with you. Uh, and I, entrust, I, I implore you to trust in Him today. If you're here today and you do know the Lord, I want to encourage you to continue in the life of faith. Look to Christ. Know that even when your thoughts or desires or actions may look crazy to the world, that you have a hope in something greater. You have hope in something that may be unseen, may seem crazy to the world because they can't see it, but it's a, a, a firm hope nonetheless. He, he has promised to never leave you nor forsake you, and He will provide for you. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we are thankful for Your Word. We're thankful for Your work in our hearts. I pray this morning that You would work in each of us, Lord, that we might uh, recognize uh, just your, your faithfulness, your faithfulness to us, uh, that you are good, as we sang this morning, that you will never let us down. We pray that you might strengthen our faith this morning. You might help us to, to, to trust in you, even when we can't see how you're working, even when we can't see what, we're doing, what you're doing. We pray that you might work in us. Father, we thank you. We love you. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to the sermon from Renaissance Church. If you have any questions about the sermon or would like to know more, please feel free to contact us by email at renaissance.mtl.gmail.com or reach out to us on social media. It's our passion to love Jesus, love each other, and love our world.